Why, hello there, priests. You have found the hardest book review podcast there is, where we digest life-changing books. We shit out greatness, and we change our lives one book at a time. Are you ready? Are you ready? Are you ready? Let's go. And here we go. Welcome back. This is Troy Hollings with the Curiously Disagreeable Podcast. Long, long ago, in a faraway place and a distant time, there lived a boy, 14 years old, with an all-consuming obsession. He wanted to be jacked, but not like jacked in the sense that normal people use the word where swimmers and basketball players meet the criteria, but jacked in the bodybuilding sense of the word. Gorilla muscle. The kind that causes nice ladies to say things like, well, you know, that's just, that's just a little bit too much. I mean, he's got a nice face, but I'd be scared to hug him since I'd think I'd leave my fucking husband. The type of Jack that seemingly spontaneously generates men of all ages and sexual orientation out of nowhere who want to talk to you about working out. What the fuck, where are all the girls? And finally, the type of jacked that would cause Arnold to make eye contact from across the room, nod, flex, and acknowledge you as one of his brothers. And at this time, long, long ago, this was right when the internet was really evolving from just like a online Dewey Decimal System for porn to the Library of Alexandria. So the boy spent his time on bodybuilding.com forums, muscular development, trying to, do, trying to absorb everything he could in his pursuit of gains. And at the time, if you wanted to get jacked, it was obvious you had to eat clean. Four to six meals a day, every two to three hours, you know, keep that metabolism going, keep the fire burning. Lean meats, slow burning carbs, don't eat too much fat, oats, chicken and rice, all these foods were supposedly magic and they'd cause a normal boy to turn into peter pan but instead of weirdly hanging out with kids you'd have the aforementioned symptoms of gorilla muscle and this boy faithfully followed the tenets of bro science for years use the mirror to guide your diet eat as much clean food as you want calories don't matter lean bulk eat to grow and for years legit five years this boy never missed a meal. And the gains were fine, but not glorious. There was no control. Everything was a mystery. Clean foods had developed the mystique of a religious sacrament. Something had to be missing. You know, he'd measure his arms and cry out to the gods, how the fuck am I so small? I've seen female field hockey players with better bodies. But he could never really gain or lose weight, uh, except for this one time when he got absolutely fat as fuck by accident, but also on purpose. Uh, he, you know, he always looked athletic, but not even on the Greyhound bus to drive to the spaceship to leave humanity behind. Compared to normal people, fine, I guess. Compared to the image in his mind, he looked small and fat, and if this was all life had to offer, maybe death at his own hand was preferable to a life looking like the Kool-Aid man on a hunger strike. There had to be something missing. And by this weird twist of fate, one day, 
He was watching YouTube videos and he heard about something called flexible dieting, AKA if it fits your macros. The concept that calories actually matter, that protein, fat, and carbs make up every single type of food, that clean foods are good, but not because they're magic, because they just have vitamins and minerals in their filling. It's almost like having a small gas tank on a car. You just can't run from the cops that long. And so, skeptical to the extreme as usual, this boy, now a small little man, embarked on his first real diet phase. Starting out at 190, looking good in a shirt, but like a like a flabby, washed-up chimp with a dad bod without a shirt. You know, love handles galore and an ass that Cardi B could see from miles away and be like, Dad? Sorry, Cardi. Dad is gone and never coming back. And this flexible dieting, this if it fits your macros, it said figure out your maintenance calories. Eat less than that. Hold everything else constant. Lift, maybe do some cardio and let time pass. And all of a sudden, magic started to happen. The trip down from 190 to 180 was basically painless. 180 to 170 started to suck, but then abs started to show up and it was worth it. Finally, the trip down from 170 to 160 basically caused this little manlet to develop the rage of a thousand sons, homicidal ideation, and he decided not to push it any further. He quit the diet at a lean 6 or 7%, but he'd found the secret calories matter why did one method you know just eat these magic foods and use the mirror as your guide brother why was that so ineffective and the other track your macros and your calories turned this little manlet into a man for the first time in his life he'd finally gotten his first period and it was all because he changed his approach and now priests if by now you didn't know that this boy was me you're idiots because that boy was me. And as I'm wont to mention many times on this here podcast, sometimes I'm slow as fuck. You know, my only good traits are like being reliable, stubborn, and having a good chin. And uh, that's a that's a martial arts term, meaning I can take extreme head trauma with no ill effects. You know, he's got a good chin. Yeah, actually doesn't come in handy in real life at all. Uh, You know, sometimes I feel like things that other people understand immediately and intuitively just blow my mind and I have to ruminate on them for weeks before the light bulb goes off. Oh my God, you're telling me I'm supposed to aim when I see a deer? And some of this I actually think is like, um, you know, like deep-seated mental retardation. But a lot is actually a lack of understanding of the way. And it's getting better each year, each month. We're becoming closer and closer to Kusemonos. But before, I would glance around at a fundamental truth in the universe, look at it, and then get distracted by titties. But it's getting better because partly because I read this book last year that unblacked my eyes and like a for today song shined light on the truth. And that truth, my priest, is one of those paradigm shifting concepts that If I do my job well today, we'll have us all smashing our fist into our hand and shouting, BLAST! How could we be so stupid? How could we not understand this before? Once you know it, it's as basic as telling girl dogs apart from boy dogs. This fucking truth, dare I say, rivals the 80-20 principle in its importance. And to find this truth, I had to journey to hell itself. And no... 
I don't mean the fiery blast furnace of tortured and evil souls. Even worse. I mean, once again, my priests. I had to commune with Ra's al Ghul, and I had to make a pilgrimage into books that consultants read. I had to go live amongst the tweed jacket wearing, pocket protector having, never been punched in the face fraternity of professionals to return with a golden egg. But as Musashi himself shouted at us, we must have no preferences. So I swallowed my bile, clenched my jaw, sifted through leagues of waste, and have returned with relics of Shabalba, the book. The four disciplines of execution. Now, full disclosure, this book uh, is one of the most boring books I've ever read. It makes no attempt to wrap this knowledge in an interesting story. It's just straight fucking facts in the way that, yeah, I mean, I guess you can read an encyclopedia and get smarter, but goddammit, bruh, at least includes some non-medical naked pictures or something. And this book, shortened to the acronym 4DX by anyone who wants to seem smart, has taken the business world by storm. Because most books, they're all pie in the sky, like waggle your dick around and chant about core values. Uh-uh, not this book. This book is eminently practical. I actually first came into contact with this book when I was on a consulting project. Uh, this large college had adopted 4DX and was having great results, and I was called in with my old man friend to help consult them on sales strategy. Now, being a good employee, I bought this book, and I was like, hey, you know, I'm, I'm going to be an overachiever here, and I'm going to read this. And I got about 30% of the way through and I realized two things. One, there was actual fucking gold inside. And two, this was the most boring book ever. But just like being in a survival situation and finding a dumpster full of expired canned food, I squirreled this book into the back of my mind. Damn, man. If I get hungry enough, I probably won't die if I eat some Chef Boy RD from 1989. And then nine months ago, I found myself that hungry. I found myself as the first and only sales rep at this billion dollar company basically being forced to figure out how to sell data analytics or fail out and die like a bitch. And as I felt my stomach rumbling, getting hungrier and hungrier, I started rationalizing eating out of the trash. I mean, how much less sanitary is a dumpster than like a warehouse floor? I mean, imagine all the rat shit in the warehouse. This is probably even cleaner. I'd also think like, you know, I've heard that cans have like a 30 year shelf life. This is only like 33 years old. It's probably good. And on a whim, I grabbed this book and I put it in my backpack as we were leaving to fly to Florida for spring break. And on the beach, a 64 ounce daiquiri with four shots of rum in one hand and four DX in the other, I started eating out of the trash. And after the first can of Chef Boyardee from 1989, I was like, damn, this shit's not as bad as I thought. After the second, I felt my strength grow. After the third, I'd gained back all my lost muscle. And after the fourth, I figured it out. I paced around the beach, uh, okay, stumbled around the beach, going for three mile walks, ruminating, thinking, planning. Everybody else on the beach was like all worried that that 90 year old queen was being mean to that Margo Markin girl and I'm over here crying like a bitch in honor of sales. Because ultimately, this book was the secret to hitting my sales goals. I came back from that trip with exact metrics for success. I immediately instituted them in my new job for myself. And though I'd been doing well before, um, I started crushing it to a level I'd never believed possible. I got promoted, I made a bunch of sales, and, and that's so, that story is actually still ongoing. Um, 
So when you hear this, I might be dead. But if not, I assume that success has, has continued. And I owe 60 or 70% of that to this here book. Because 4DX is the thought process that everybody gets wrong all the time in all things. Everybody wants to measure things. And that's cool. But what people miss is that there are two wildly different types of measurements. Leading indicators and lagging indicators. If we go back to my lamentations of a skinny fat man child, the biggest difference between the two approaches, one, was focused on the lagging indicators. You know, how am I looking in the mirror? How much bigger are my arms? I must not be eating enough magic food. Just eat big to get big, brother. Train insane or remain the same, son. Where the other was focused ruthlessly on the step before that. The inputs, the leading indicators, the things I could actually control. And that is the secret to life and success in all things. What are those critical measures that come before the measures everybody else cares about? In deer hunting, it's not how many deer you killed this season. It's how many hours you spent in the stand. It's not how accurate your shot was in the moment. It's how many times did you practice before you took the shot. It's not if your lifts are going up. It's are you in a caloric surplus and are you doing more than you did last week and progressively increasing over a, over a month or two block. And that is what we're here to get learned up on today. So who are these authors? Well, uh, first thing here is, is I'm just covered in trash and I'm feeling extra disgruntled after being just like forced to eat food for the poor. So I'm, I'm basically going to be extremely dismissive and rude. Um, three different authors, Chris McChesney, his bio is woefully incomplete, uh, and, but you Google him and he goes to some pictures of himself looking real handsome. And he's a, he's a global practice leader at Franklin Covey. Sean Covey, second author. If that name Covey sounds familiar, yeah, it is, because his dad wrote the book Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. So he's basically like if your dad was Leif Erikson and you're trying to chart your own path as a Viking berserker, but till the end of your days, you'll forever be known as, oh, you're Leif's boy. I'm a berserker, goddammit, I'm a human being. Then he kills himself. And the last author, Jim Hewling, rivals only Darren Hardy from The Compound Effect in corporate fucking marketing on his website. He'll teach you how to wake up your dream, a step-by-step -step guide, and choose your life. I don't know, can you help me not have an erection all the time? Sorry, sorry, getting, getting a little fucking fired up here, but once again, doesn't matter. If we are following the way, we don't give a shit about any of that. We set aside our bias, we thank these gentlemen for their food, and we dig into this goddamn dumpster with the hunger of a family of raccoons finding a dumpster full of diapers. Into the book, dedication to Jim Stewart, our friend and colleague and the originator of this content, 1946 to 2006, rest in peace. May you be feasting in white-collar Valhalla with John D. Rockefeller and Stephen Hawk. As in quotes, but I, that doesn't match up with how they wrote the rest. We're going with it. That's what they said. Respect. Forward. Ah, some bitches give... <laughs> okay, we're going to have to tone this back here. Some nice professional fellow is giving the forward. Andy Grove, who helped me... Who helped found Intel and then led the enterprise for years as CEO has taught me some extraordinary things. One of them occurred in a meeting where he had several of his direct reports and, and they were all plotting to launch their new microprocessor. During a break in the meeting, Grove asked me, how do I do this? 
I readily responded that he needed to set up a different autonomous business unit that had a different overhead structure, had its own sales force. And he said in his typical gruff voice, you're such a naive academic. I asked you how to do it and you told me what I should do. He swore, God damn it. And he said, I know what I need to do. I just don't know how to do it. That's my best uh, gruff impression. Uh, <laughs> and then this bitch who's doing the forward, he says, I felt like I was standing in front of a deity with no place to hide. You know, it's the metaphorical Kai Green just shouted you out of the gym for having a bad mind-muscle connection and just moving the weight instead of feeling that their stretch and squeeze, boy. And as I flew back to Boston, he says, I wondered whether I should focus my research as an academic trying to develop a theory of the how. But I dismissed this idea because I basically couldn't figure it out in three minutes and I'm an alcoholic. And because I'm a failure as a man, what remains is the how of managing a company during times of change. This how has been studied minimally until this book. Now this book isn't filled with anecdotes of companies that succeeded once. Now I will say, I feel like that's a pretty subtle dig at Jim Collins' good to great. Fuck. Shots fired, son. Rather, this book, this book truly contains the theory of causality of how execution is achieved. And as we will all see, this applies as much to planning a murder, though we don't condone that, as running a company, as trying to build your pipeline and meet a wife. Clayton Christensen, Harvard. Forward two, because Leif's boy doesn't give a fuck. Strategy and execution. There are two things a leader can influence when it comes to producing results. Your strategy, AKA the plan, and your ability to execute that strategy. Ask yourself, which of these do leaders struggle with more? Is it creating the strategy or is it executing it? Obviously it's fucking execution. And so for me, an example, I worked at a company that was, it was selling a product that was basically free and had as much of a demand signal as crack in the 1980s and the company still was in financial trouble because execution is hard. And why is it so difficult? Well, this book represents the most actionable and impactful insights from all that we've learned. In it, you'll discover a set of disciplines that have been embraced by thousands of leaders, enabling them to produce extraordinary results. Uh, that was from some guy at Eli Lilly who attended a meeting in 2007. Into the book, The Real Problem with Execution. Whether you call it a strategy, a goal, or simply an improvement effort, any initiative you as a leader drive in order to significantly move your team or organization forward will fall into one of two categories. One, stroke of the pen. So that's basically just like, hey, I'm writing a new law, fuckers. The second requires behavioral change. Stroke of the pen strategies are those you can execute just by ordering it done. Every employee without tattoos will be taken out back and shot by 5 p.m. Eastern time on Friday. Behavioral change strategies are different. You can't just order them to happen because executing them requires getting people, often lots of people, to do something different. For example, you may, you may be trying to get all your store employees to greet every single customer that enters the store within 30 seconds, or get your entire sales team to start using this new CRM system. It's also not uncommon to find many stroke of the pen strategies that, once approved, evolve into those that require significant behavior change. 
you know once you put the decree out that every non-tattooed person is going to be taken out back and shot there's a lot of behavioral change that goes into that effort and everybody you know just bitches about their people god damn it carl all you have to do is pull the trigger look at them they're not even people they don't have tattoos read this book by bill jordan he j they're just targets to you man but it's hard you can do the stroke of the pen you gotta get a lot of human behavior change and it is natural for a leader to assume that people are the problem after all they are the ones not doing what we what we need to have done but there you'd be wrong the people are not the problem the problem is inherent in the system as a leader you own responsibility for the system if you find yourself blaming people, you should kneel down, quietly whisper a prayer to Lord Jocko, then cut your fucking stomach and die. Jesus Christ, dude. That's Man, this Four Disciplines of Execution book is a lot more intense than I remembered it. As we dug further, we began to put our fingers up a farm, uh, mm, our fingers, finger on a far more fundamental cause of execution breakdown. We hadn't seen it because it was everywhere. It was hiding in plain sight. So they're they're pulling that thread of like, well, strategy is easy. You know, everybody wants to do damn plans all the time, but the execution, that's hard as fuck. And why? Is it the people? Like, God, we just got a bunch of idiots. No. If it's it is the system. You as the leader need to own responsibility for the system. And the real reason that they put forth that most of this execution falls flat is the whirlwind. The real enemy of execution is your day job. We call it the whirlwind. It is the massive amount of energy that is required just to keep your operation going on a day-to-day -day basis. And ironically, is also the thing that makes it so hard to execute anything new. Because both the whirlwind and those strategic goals are ne necessary to survive and thrive in your organization. However, they are clearly different and compete relentlessly for time, resources, energy, and attention. The whirlwind is urgent and acts on you and everyone working for you every minute of the day. The goals you've set for moving forwards are important, but when urgency and importance clash, urgency will usually win. Once you become aware of this struggle, you will see it playing out everywhere in any team that's trying to execute anything new. Think of your own experience. Can you remember an important initiative that launched well and then died? How did the end come? Was it a loud crash and a tremendous explosion? Or did it go down quietly, suffocated by the whirlwind? Executing in spite of the whirlwind means overcoming not only its powerful distraction, but also the inertia of, this is the way it's always been done. Understand, you have to do the whirlwind to keep the organization going, but if you ignore the urgent today, it'll kill you today. But if you ignore the important today, it'll kill you tomorrow. The four disciplines of execution aren't designed for managing your whirlwind. They are for executing your most critical strategy in the midst of your whirlwind. So, for so that's the whole shit. Is like the reason execution's so hard is because there's a couple fucking super important things, but the day to day gets in the way. And so if you somehow get sucked into the whirlwind, you could go weeks without actually ever doing the critical important things. Hence why they're here to tell us the four things we need to fucking always do or we should die when we're trying to execute anything. And we're going to quickly just high level run through these and then, and then we'll go a little bit deeper. Discipline one, 
Focus on the wildly important. Basically, the more you try, the less you actually accomplish. Focusing on the wildly important requires you to go against basic wiring to do less so your team can do more. When you implement Discipline 1, you start by selecting one, or at the most two, extremely important goals. Failure to achieve it will make everything else you do, even your fucking life, seem worthless, and you'd be better off killing yourself. Did the... I can't believe he would say that. So harsh. Discipline one is the discipline of focus. Discipline two, act on the lead measures. This is the discipline of leverage. It's based on the simple principle that all actions are not created equal. Some actions have more impact than others when reaching for a goal, and it is those you want to identify and act on if you want to reach your goal. Whatever strategy you're pursuing, your progress and success will be based on two kinds of measures, lag and lead. Lagging measures are the tracking measurements of the wildly important goal, and they are usually the ones you spend the most time praying over. Revenue, profit, how many sales did I make, customer satisfaction, what's the weight on the scale? All of those are lagging measures, meaning that when you receive them, the performance that drove them is already in the past. That's why you're praying. Oh God, I just hope I make weight. Leading measures are quite different in that they are the measures of the most high impact things your team must do to reach the goal. In essence, they measure the new behaviors that will drive success on the lagging measures, whether those behaviors are as simple as offering a sample in a bakery or as complex as adhering to good standards in jet engine design. So what he's saying is there's two types of measures. There's lagging, which is what everybody focuses on. That's the weight on the scale. That's how many sales did you make? That's, you know, do you have a girlfriend? The leading measures are, you know, how many prospecting calls did you make? How many dates have you go, you know, have you gone on? You know, what what are the calories you've consumed? Acting on the lead measures is one of the little known secrets of execution. Most leaders, even some of the most experienced are so focused on lag measures that the discipline to focus on the lead measures feels counterintuitive. And don't misunderstand here. Lagging measures are ultimately the most important. You know, that's did you make the sales? But lead measures are what will get you to the lag. Discipline three, keep a compelling scoreboard. Now, scoreboard, scoreboard, that's one of the most fucking consultancy words ever. But what it is, is just track your damn data in an easy to, to understand way. Uh, people play differently when they are keeping score. Discipline three is the discipline of engagement. The highest levels of performance always come from people who are engaged. And that comes from people who know if they're winning or losing. Keeping score. The kind of scoreboard that will drive the highest levels of engagement with your team will be the one designed solely for and often by the players. So we'll talk about that, but that's an interesting thought because, you know, there's data that my boss and my boss's boss need to be able to report to the head honcho. That data is actually not that correlated to success in my job. And so if I, if I, as the lowly little peon, only focus on the data that they need, well, goddammit, I'm just eating clean and hoping for magic. But if I have a scoreboard that has that data, so I just confirm that I'm tracking in the right direction, but I have those lead measures, that, that number of calories consumed, what, you know, what, uh, how many prospecting calls have I made? And I've got that easy to understand. 
You know, shit start changing, he would say. So discipline three, we keep a compelling scoreboard. Discipline four, create a cadence of accountability. The first three disciplines set up the game, but it isn't until you apply discipline four that the team is really in the game. It's based on the principle of accountability that unless we consistently hold each other accountable, the goal naturally disintegrates into the whirlwind. The cadence of accountability is a rhythm of regular and frequent meetings with any team that owns a wildly important goal. These meeting ha meetings happen at least weekly and are usually about half an hour. In that brief time, each team member will come with what they're accountable for and what results they, they agree to despite the whirlwind. The secret to Discipline 4, in addition to the repeated cadence of doing it, is that the team members create their own commitments. When your team begins to see lagging measures move because of all the efforts they've been doing and tracking and seeing, they will know that they're winning. And this was me, tracking calories and macros for the first time. You know, performance in the gym mostly staying constant or even slightly improving except for like the last month and uh, fat just melting off. I was like, holy fuck, I'm an idiot for not doing this before. This is awesome. And so with all of that said, it's time to dive deeper into the specific disciplines. And I'm here, I'm picking through the trash. I'm just going to huck some cans of Chef Boyardee back at you. You know, you keep your hands up, you watch the ball, you get ready to die. Because this book is broken up into three sections. What are the disciplines? Installing them in your team and installing them in your organization. Now we're going to really dig into section one. What are these disciplines? We're going to lightly tap section two. And then we're just going to kind of mutter spells and profanities and skip the whole point of section three. We move into the four disciplines of execution section one discipline one focus on the wildly important the first discipline is to focus your finest efforts on the one or two goals that will make all the difference instead of giving a mediocre effort to dozens of goals execution starts with focus without it the other three disciplines won't be able to help you and apparently everybody they meet with is like yeah dog focus is good duh um, but he says, we also want you to know that when we talk about narrowing your focus in discipline one, we are not talking about narrowing the size and complexity of your whirlwind though over time, attention to wigs, such a consultant term, wildly important goals might caught, have that effect. Your whirlwind includes all the urgent activities necessary to, to sustain your current day-to-day -day operations. Simply put. Discipline one is about applying more energy against fewer goals. I uh, gave some damn big justification of why we don't focus on 10 goals, but let me take a guess. 80-20 uh, principle. Got it. Um, okay, so an example. Right now, there are more than 100 airplanes approaching some random airport somewhere, say Chicago. But for the air traffic, air traffic controller, only one airplane is wildly important right now the one that's landing at the moment. So the controller's still aware of all the other plans on the radar. She's keeping track of them, but right now all her talent and expertise is solely focused on one flight. Wigs are like that. These are the goals that you must achieve with total excellence, no matter what the cir circling priorities of your day-to-day. -day. Most of our goals are important, 
but only one or two are usually wildly important. There will always be more good ideas than there is a capacity to execute. So that's the first trap. Uh, you know, just like, God damn it, just everything's important. The second trap is trying to turn everything in your whirlwind into a wig. So there's some graph, he says that's wrong. Uh, because all those whirlwind dials require big human change. And you can't just press on any one dial with enough force to drive a change. So what he's saying is that the two mistakes are one, no, I can handle it. I'm going to do five really important goals. So that's the first mistake. He's saying, no, do the 80-20 principle. Uh, and the second mistake is, you know, oh, yeah, you know what? We should do this like leading, lagging stuff for like every single thing we do. And then, you know, you got metrics for like how quickly did you get out of the car? You got metrics for like, did everybody in the organization wash their hands? And it's just like, uh, it's too much. And so, you know, you're not going to have the bandwidth and focus to, to change all the dials in the whirlwind. So you focus on the most important one. You prioritize that. You execute it. And then you move to the next. And then you move to the next. Unless you can achieve your goal with the stroke of a pen, success is going to require your team to change their behavior. And they simply cannot change that many behaviors at once. So what he's saying is that even if some of the whirlwind is fucked up, hold it as constant as you can. And maybe it's like incrementally improving, but you, you hold it constant and you hammer on the, on the most important thing. Um, so now uh, he sets up a, like a rough rule of thumb that, that's helpful, though, to think about this. So he says, if you have 100% of time throughout the week, 80% of that is probably honestly just realistically going to get sucked into the whirlwind. What you have to do, though, through blood, sweat, tears, is hold that remaining 20% and force it to go to your wig, your wildly important goal. And as we know, if we understand the 80-20 principle, that's actually a bunch of capacity devoted to your wig. You know, over a uh, 40 hour work week, he's saying, you know, regardless of what you have to do, that eight hours, that 20% of your week, you, you keep that to keep driving the strategic, most important goal forwards. Fuck if there's a storm, keep driving. Um, so he goes into how do we pick our wildly important goals? Um, here's my summary. It's the 80-20 principle, God damn it. Okay, great. All wigs must have a finish line from X to Y by when. So I am going to lose 15 pounds by this date. We are going to increase sales by 20% by the end of the year. And now uh, because A, rednecks have good ideas, and B, I ain't trying to fucking prattle on in professional speak, we're going to use a deer hunting example. So deer hunting, you know, what, what would be a good wig for, for deer hunting? Well, let's say for the 2022 season, so it's October 1st to roughly January 1st, uh, if we're using bow, I want to, I want to kill two deer, obviously to eat the meat. Uh, they're very cute. I feel bad every time, but you know, Hey, the meat, I'm a meat eater. So I hunting's the most ethical way, in my opinion, to get meat if you're going to do it. Um, so kill two deer in the 2022 season at least one using a bow that'd be a good wig so x to y zero to two deer with this specific thing by the end of the 2022 season okay that makes sense another example he gives is shooting for the moon in 1958 nasa had a shitload of important goals 
like and he has this cool chart and i'm not i mean it's not even like cool it's just like oh good point uh where there's Na- like nasa's goals in 1958 there was 10 of them and it was like the expansion of human knowledge of phenomenon in the atmosphere and in space oh okay can you help me understand how we know if we've done a good job on that goal now you'll know it when you see it okay uh lead the industry in x but in 1961 president john f kennedy shook nasa to its foundation when he made the pronouncement hey bitch your goal is is we and i already committed to the whole country (laughs) uh, land a man on the moon and return him safely to earth before this decade is done suddenly nasa had a formidable new challenge a war that it would fight for the next 10 years and it was stated exactly the way wigs should be what do you think happened to accountability within nasa when the challenge of putting a man on the moon was publicly announced well it went up through the roof now let's think about a different question because there's this like feeling that like i don't want to be too hard on my people man maybe no oh yeah it's okay little buddy it's all right consider a different question though what happened to morale well when accountability soared actually morale went up too so they're working harder they're actually measured like shit matters and you know they some people might get fired that wouldn't have gotten fired but most people are okay to work hard as fuck if it makes sense you know it's like paying taxes i'd feel fine if i felt like my taxes were well spent or if i could even like see where the money's going but in the absence of the accountability i assume uh you know somewhat rightly so that we're just taking my money buying machine guns and then giving them to the Taliban, which which happened. Uh, you know, people want to be on SEAL Team 6, even if it means getting after it. So we have to create that environment. And we do that by having a specific goal. Now, an example for me. Um, so I hadn't wrestled before sophomore year of high school. And, you know, I'd done some jujitsu, but I was basically like strong, didn't have a good enough ego to lose so i was never really getting better um and i was kind of shitty so like it didn't really help me at all uh so i get on this wrestling team of fucking savages because i went to this school with 2,000 kids i think and um you know so that means that hey you know if you're varsity you're actually like pretty fucking good at this because there's a bunch of people who would want to do the wrestling team okay and so there was a clear delineation between varsity and jv but not in like a hazing way, but in like a, um, you just, you realize the universal truth that a life on JV isn't actually a life worth living and no amount of pain as a down payment is too much to not have to bear that eternal shame. You know, I remember the, the, our state champ, uh, like I think top, top two or three at state, um, our 160 pounder, you know, he was Lee, he was the captain of the team. He was the best. I remember he would cut weight. He would throw up and pass out during practice. Um, like sometimes he would push himself so hard he'd be crying, like uncontrollably crying, but still kicking our asses. Like so, this crying guy just still hit a perfect double leg on me. Uh, you know, he'd go put ice on the thermostat so it would be hotter, and the you know the heat would kick on, and no one said shit to him. Uh, we just did kind of that internal head nod to ourselves and realized like shit i guess this is how it is but i saw that and i was like fuck i want some of this so i started hanging out aka getting fucking murked by the by the varsity people uh but after a year 
I was one of them. I was on varsity and I helped enforce holding that line. The purpose and clarity, even within the fucking suffering, made it one of life's most worthy experiences and I still take lessons from wrestling to this day. Having a worthy goal that everyone is bought into drives accountability, but also morale. Do it. So that was discipline one, focused on those wildly important goals. The next discipline, as we heard, is focused on those leading indicators. And I've said it, and maybe you don't believe me, but it's true. This is the fucking secret to life. This is the one thing that you can know 10,000 things from. But as usual, if you want to know that, if you want to learn everything, achieve all your worldly desires, you're going to have to tune in next time on the next episode of the Curiously Disagreeable Podcast. Thank you. Thank you very much. And that, my pretties, is another episode down of the Curiously Disagreeable Podcast. Check us out at CuriouslyDisagreeable.com, The Troy Hollings on Instagram, or wherever the fuck you get your podcasts. The end.